Welcome back and thanks for listening to the NES Experience. Please like and subscribe if you enjoy this episode. Ned has been training athletes for the last 20 years and here at NES Sports Performance we use sound training techniques and the NES system to help you gain a competitive edge and improve your measurables and prevent injuries. If you're an athlete, a strength and conditioning intern, coach, maybe even just a parent and you're looking for more information on sports performance, you've come to the right place. This episode, we're going to be focusing on the NFL draft, uh, what goes into preparing for it, just the entire process and how you navigate it uh, as an athlete and as a trainer, the things that go into it. Ned's had a lot of experience with the NFL Combine and just wanted to get into that a little bit. So I guess the way to kind of start it off is how do you even like learn to do NFL combine prep like is there a school or anything like that that you go to um there's not an official school but the best way to learn would be I mean there's really you know three to five heavy hitter combine prep professional you know train uh places that do a really good job of training so you know for me I did my internship at IMG Academy I believe it was like 2003. Um, And that's where I was able to see a solid foundational scientific-based framework of how to run a successful program. Um, Not everybody goes there. So that's not that I'm saying you guys got to go run and do an internship at, you know, Exos or IMG or Bomberitos. Uh, But, I mean, those were the types of places that, do a really good job. So when I was there, they had three first round draft picks, a third round draft pick. Um, Eli Manning was there. There was a guy, if you're a sports historian, Michael Clayton, he was a wide receiver for LSU. He ended up playing, I believe for the Bucks. And then Ben Watson, he was a tight end for the, he played on a bunch of teams, but I believe he got drafted by the Patriots. Um, Julius Jones, he was a running back for the, uh, Cowboys. And I was just in a place where you had high level athletes and, uh, the guy who ran the program, Pete Bomarito at the time, he has Bomaritos in Florida now, and he's still one of the heavy hitters in the game. So I just happened to learn from super smart people at the time, Lauren Seagrave, who created Velocity Sports Performance Franchise. He's an Olympic sprinting coach. He was there, um, and he's the one that kind of brought the whole changing running mechanics and improving starts, and he really kind of took that and brought his expertise in there. But, um, yeah, there was just a wealth of really smart people, and they they used an integrated approach, and they did a really great job there, so... And I was able to, I mean, I was the bitch. I wasn't taking, you know, creating the programs, but uh, I was able to basically see a comprehensive program run the right the right way and see phenomenal results. And I kind of took that blueprint and used that, you know, later on in life. So what kind of things do you do kind of prepare them for the combine? I know you know, the kind of exercises and stuff like that that they're testing. It's going to be bench press, you know, shuttle, 40, uh, L drill, bench. I might have said that one already. Uh, it's a little late. But do you just do 
those and just rep those like every day or something like that? Or do you, you know, how do you improve someone's 40 for the combine? There's a lot that goes into it. And and most people, the casual fan that tunes in, you know, during the week of the combine, they really don't understand how many hours these guys put in to perfecting their craft and preparing for this. In the old days, you could actually get by 15 years ago and not really prepare. But now, tech, between technology and, you know, these guys are running faster and faster. There was like, what, 15 guys that ran in the four threes as far as wide receivers this year? It's crazy. So <clears throat> what you'll notice is your reputable – I mean, a lot of people say they do combine training, but it's with marginal guys that – you know, they don't know what the hell they're doing. It's mom and pop. But when you look at the, you know, really good places, they all integrate a whole bunch of different areas. So, I mean, it all starts with a, a sound strength program. And, you know, part of it is we all know you've heard my rant on college training and conditioning. So a lot of these guys are genetically untapped and it's it's being able to get the appropriate strength in the right areas. And so, you know, that you got to get a strength. There's the weight room component where you're improving strength and power to improve your measurables. Part of it is beating the test. So, you know, something like the reach, um, you know, the vertical jump is a test of power. The way you me measure it is you take your total jump height. That's how high you jump and you subtract your reach. Well, if you're, if you can make your reach smaller, you are going to, increase the difference between your jump and the reach, therefore making you jump higher. So the vertical jump is a test of power and based off of your position, you know, if you're a DB and you're jumping 30 inches, that shit don't fly. So part of what we do, yes, we're trying to improve power output to improve jump height, but also we teach them how to cheat and make their reach smaller than what it is. It's to the point now where, you know, 15 years ago, they, they weren't, they didn't really look into it that much, but they got like six guys pulling on arms at the combine. These, they'll take a 300 pound guy and they're just ripping and prying it apart. Cause at this point in time, it's common knowledge and they know that they're trying to cheat the test. But I had a guy <clears throat> three years ago for his pro day. He came in, he was, he was played at St. Francis, uh, Terrell did oh you threw to Terrell yeah no absolutely uh threw with him a decent amount so we were prepping him for his pro day and he goes he goes to his pro day and they do the vertical jump and he's doing the reach cheat and he ends up so that was his second pro day um he went to the wrong place I won't say which one it is but he went the wrong place but they were focused on training Dak Prescott and Derek Henry, he was in that class. So he went there, dropped five grand, you know, for two weeks. And they didn't teach him how to bench. They didn't teach him shit because he basically was paying rent. He was the guy that, you know, financed it. They spent all their times on the other guys. So the, his first time around, he basically, I don't want to say tanked his pro day, but he ran a four six six, And at wide, a 1AA right wide receiver, that doesn't fly. And his vert was like 33. <clears throat> So he's just a genetic freak. So we trained him for 12 weeks. We had him right before his pro day jump in. I mean, his high, I think, was like 41 inches. 
So he goes there. So they have the numbers from the previous year, and the, they had this assumption that he was going to jump whatever, 33, 34. And he goes out and he jumps like 42, and they didn't believe him. And they made him do his reach again. I was It was cool because um, with the pro days, you can get in. So I was able to watch everything, whereas the combine is completely closed down. Generally, you can't really get in. And they read, and they were pulling on him and yanking on him, and they put him back under there. And then th- they tested his reach four times, and they ended up writing down like 40. They like took an inch away. But, um, I mean, he was legitimately basically like 38, but he was able to gain two inches by the reach cheat, and they couldn't pull on it hard enough to uh to give him the real score and that's part of what we do so you have you know there's specific ways you could if you go if you watch the nfl combine we're to the point now where every guy generally looks the same so there's you know people there's crowding the line you should never crowd the line in a 40 you always want it's to the point now where it's built in on the turf at the combine but there's specific ways to start there's Uh, you know we know that you're going to every stride is looked at in a 40 every step is looked at in a 5105 or a pro shuttle we know that it's going to take two steps to get there seven to eight to go across and three and a half to get through so we're literally trying to you know with that test we want to keep them on a balance beam so i'm like you're in the circus stay on the balance beam because you you don't want to take any missteps or take rounds so everything is kind of accounted for So um, we're teaching them how to run because they never learned how to run. So there's that whole progression. There's the physical therapy and sports medicine aspect where, you know, you have to, these guys are coming in banged up because they're, you know, a lot of them, especially if you're at that level, you're playing high level D1 football and it's just football. So it's rehabbing their injuries and getting them back into performance shape that, you know, that's a big aspect of it. And then you got mental conditioning. That's not something that we do, but your big places, they have sport, you know, reputable sports psychologists. You ain't going to find one in Milford, but you know, your best places have really good mental conditioning. So there's that aspect. Um, there's just a lot of different components that kind of go into getting these guys where they need to be in such a short time. It's funny you bring up uh, mental conditioning. When I was in high school, our football coach had uh, mental toughness days because he thought we were a little bit soft as a team. So he tried to condition us mentally, and it was just uh, a lot of hitting the sled and stuff like that. Uh, in college, they brought in a sports psychologist to kind of go about it that way. But what kind of uh, kind of mental conditioning do you need to go through the uh, the draft process? Because I know – the interviews are kind of notorious for having ridiculous questions thrown at athletes and stuff, or at least now they're apparently kind of calming down a bit. But it used to be, oh, do you consider yourself, you know, a cat or a dog? Uh, it's, you know, really kind of weird, dumb things like that. Um, but what's that kind of process like? So, I mean, first there's interviewing. So if you're going to one of the big places – they teach you <clears throat> how to interview and present yourself. So we're also in a weird, you know, Instagram, social media world where people don't know how to talk to people. So it's becoming even more now. And what this is, is the most important job interview of your life. So 
<clears throat> those places. They got to teach you how to, you know, they, they get, they get asked questions and you have to be able to answer them. And much like an interview, there's a right and a wrong way to, to answer the question. And then, especially if you have character issues, you know, they're going to try and ex- expose your weaknesses. They want to see how you're going to react to that. You have to be able to, you know, explain to them, you know, yes, I'm five foot seven, but that's something that I can't control. But what I can control is blah, 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 blah. Or they might say you suck in pass protection. And there it's, it's a, it's a dance of communicating and, and being able to flip it and turn it into something that works in your favor. So there's the interviewing component. <clears throat> there is the psych- psychological component of performing. So something like 40 anxiety. It's a real thing. I've had kids that have it, and it's absolutely terrible. Um, it's teaching them to <clears throat> basically not have 40 anxiety. And you typically get this with the kid. It's always the 40. I mean, the 40 is the biggest thing, you know, universally. But you know, some kids, like, if you've been hearing for, you know, nine years that you just need fifth gear, if you were a little bit faster, <clears throat> um, and you hear that shit for nine years, you get told you're too short for nine years, you get told you're, you know, too fat or whatever, and all of these things can play a role, you know, into having whatever 40 anxiety so there's that type of coaching and then there's with the nfl combine they do something called wonderlick testing so basically they're doing brain tests and you it's i don't know how many questions i'll say 100 questions and you can get a score of up to don't quote me 30 32 and then based off of your position you're supposed to be able to hit the measurables that are needed. So on the football field, who do you think has to have the highest uh, Wonderlick score? Quarterbacks. Quarterbacks. Number two? I'd probably say middle linebackers, but probably now two safeties. They're calling a lot of the defense these days in certain ways. Linemen. I could, yeah, I could see that too. You gotta be able to get pass protection and stuff like that. Absolutely, that's a huge part. Who do you think needs the? Where is Wonderlick score least needed? Running back. I was gonna say defensive tackle, but yeah, I guess running back. I mean, you gotta be able to see the hole and stuff, but yeah. I used to uh, in college. I used to lean on my running back all the time and just be like, hey, like. Let's check down, you know, maybe let's do this, let's do that, you know, just bail me out a little bit, buddy. And, uh, yeah, it was a good time. Um, Yeah, well, in this situation, they've deemed that the running back doesn't need to have the highest Wonderlick score. Um, But you're put in that category. So even with my guys, like, we had flashcards and tests, and we did, you know, when I was in Connecticut, we didn't have a sports psychologist, so I had to be the sports psychologist. And for as far as prepping for the Wonderlicks, you know, that's what I did. So they're, I mean, that's worked into their day. They spent you know, time every day, you know, working on that. So all of those things are kind of umbrellaed under the mental conditioning, interviewing component. And there's a lot that goes into it. 
So besides like a sports psychologist, uh, I mean, there's other people involved in the whole draft process as well. Like there's agents. I know you said uh, you had a guy who went with uh, Dak Prescott and Derek Henry in that draft class who dropped like $5,000. You know, that that's a big chunk of money. Uh, what's that kind of like relationship with agents and just them, you know, paying and fronting the bill for sports performance training and their clients, you know, their athletes before they're drafted? Because it's a weird time when you graduate college or you're going from college to the draft because you haven't really made any money yet. Yeah. So these, the athletes get recruited and <clears throat> the higher level athlete you are, the more agent the more agents options you have, the lower level guy, you're scrounging the big guys. It's, you know, picking which one you want. They usually go with the biggest players usually go with the biggest names. So, you know, agents are kind of ranked every year. They come out with top 10 ranks and, uh, you know, you typically see most of the players go with, you know, the, it's a high percentage of players that go, to those top 10 agencies. And then you have a whole bunch of little agents that that are running around trying to grab um, bodies, but the numbers don't work. So one of the agents that I don't deal with anymore, something that he said was he said, there's basically 400 players and 2000 agents. The numbers don't work because everybody wants to be an agent. Nobody wants to do the work to become a, a great agent, but everybody wants to, rub elbows with professional athletes um so you know these players are investments so the better you are the more money the agent is going to invest in you so if you look at a first round guy a first projected first round guy everybody has a dollar amount of investment so they could be you know as high as 50 to a hundred thousand dollars whereas your lowest level guy to get any you know to get any sort of professional, you know, training and assistance, they might get 3000 And then based off of what your budget is, that kind of determines where you go. So agents pay for professional private sector facilities like mine and Exos and Bomberitos and all the other places. They basically pay us to prepare them. So that is part of, you know, the process and, and, and what an agent offers. So yes, they do contract negotiations. Um, they have a black book. So you get access. The reason why you have an agent outside of negotiate the contract is to basically open doors for you. The bigger an agent you are, the more, you know, teams, you know, and contacts you have, and it's going to typically get you a higher draft position. If you get an agent that doesn't know anybody, um, which I've had before. How are you going to get to the NFL if you don't know nobody in the NFL or you know one team? That means if you know five, if you have relationships with five teams, you know, out of 32, then your guy generally only has, unless it's drummed up by an outstanding performance, he's going to be limited on his options. So, the, you know, they're the key. You see people that veer off like in. I'm not going to have an agent. Get an agent, like get the protection and get somebody that knows what they're doing to help you. Stop trying to save the 7% because that 7% doesn't mean shit once you get there. Um, 
but yes, they offer professional turn or they offer, you know, pays. They put them up depending on who you are. Most of the guys that I worked with, they get them a, an apartment and they get them a Lexus to drive in and they bring in a chef and they base it, they pay for everything. They give them a monthly allowance and all of this money that the agent puts in, if everything goes right, they get their return by them being drafted, but really it's making the 53-man roster. Um, they don't get shit until they make the 53-man roster. So even if they're on the practice squad, they don't get paid. It's that contract. And their first contract, generally, unless you're a first-rounder, it isn't that big. So agents really get paid on the second contract. Yeah. No, that's why uh, you always hear people who are you know in line for their second contract and all of that kind of stuff. That's why it's so important. Uh, so once the agent pays you know whatever kind of money he's gonna to, to send an athlete to your facility what kind of happens after that you know is is you know just kind of like on a daily basis what's the schedule like for for this kind of stuff um it's i mean it's a nine to five job really it's even more than that because their day usually starts at seven thirty in the morning um most places they have pre-prepared food or they have a chef make the food for them. Um, they'll do that, their supplementation. Um, and so 7.30 really the day starts. And then typically they start around 9. Uh, at 9 o'clock we are foam rolling, doing tissue work, restoring range of motion statically. Basically we're getting prepared to warm up. So this is the warm up before the warm up. Then it nine o'clock they'll start their active dynamic warm-up um which usually for them because they're genetic freaks and they need to take more time to warm up that can take up to a half an hour we'll go through and um do jumps so we'll go through the reach the reach cheat teach them that you know there's there's i mean we're looking at we're videotaping them when they come in they're doing the testing we're, we're trying to make their vertical jump more efficient. So there's the power output, the raw output of improving power, and then there's figuring out how to jump the right way, syncing everything together, loading the, you know, the aspect of the foot that should be loaded, using the arms and getting um, elastic contractions out of the upper body, and staying in a straight line and standing underneath the vertical jump as opposed most people stand with like a foot in front and that's not going to get you your max height and how to reach and alter and move your body. And, you know, with the broad jump, it's the same thing where we're practicing the test. So we'll go through, you know, how the head position should be projection angle. When you come out, you don't want to be too low because you can't recover the feet. If you're too high, you look like a rainbow. So we're measuring those angles um and finding out you know what's optimal there so we'll do jump practice that's usually 15 20 minutes and then we'll go into running mechanics we'll do a 90 a 90 minute movement session basically working on you know starts in their first basically 10 20 yards of sprinting so that's two hours so now we're at 11 o'clock and then they'll go through treatment and recovery regeneration um, if it's a Wednesday or a Saturday, that's when we have massage therapists that come in. They might be getting treatment or training because they're usually still, <clears throat> you know, depending on the person, they're recovering from injury. 12 o'clock, we do lunch. 
They're back at 1.30, um, weight room prep. So this is the warm-up of going into the weight room before you get into the weight room, making sure, you know, the muscles are properly activated and, you know, prepping them to produce strength and power. So that's our lift. The lift is usually, it's two hours. They lift four days a week. Um, and that's where we work in the core strengthening and the extra joint stabilization and injury prevention and stability work along with the main lifts, the power and, you know, the squatting and all the strength stuff. So that takes you to four. You hit the post-workout shake and more tissue work, recovery, static stretching, because we have to recover. These guys are recovering on a three-month schedule. They're recovering monthly with downloads. They're recovering weeklies with regeneration days, Wednesdays and Saturdays, pool work, tissue work, massage, you know. And then on a daily basis, they're recovering through supplementation and more tissue work, more stretching, more therapy, um, everything. It's like breaking, breaking the guy down, building them back up, breaking them down, building them back up. And it's just this cycle. Um, by five o'clock where they're doing film every day, we're vi- just like you watch film for football. They're watching film of their forties to give you an idea about how things have changed in 2003 when i first when i saw my first combine class we were sitting there with vhs tape and we were like you had to like hit pause at the right second or the or you know you would get the wrong ground strike and then it's funny to see 2023 i just pull out my iphone and i can grab just the crispest nicest videos put it on slow-mo break it down they got apps that break everything down and we were sitting there with vhs you know with the list of names that i told you and uh, the times have changed, but film is something. And then dinner, same thing. Everything, everything that they eat is laid out, so it's not like every, oh, I think I'll go home and have dinner. It's just there. It's in containers, and you eat it. And and then after that, so they, I mean, they're starting at seven thirty. They're home by probably six, and then if you got a good guy, he's doing more video. Like I'll send guys video at night and we're chatting back and forth. And what adjustments are we going to make? Because the next day right back at it again. And with something like this, it's so time sensitive. You basically have to prepare in the morning, go through the whole day and then prepare for the next day. And that eats up your nighttime. And then we have to be able to make adjustments and then the next day act on those. And And that's how we build them, you know, so quick, so fast. So we say nine to five. They spend seven, seven, eight hundred hours when it's all said and done before they walk out there for the combine. It's crazy. Yeah, that's just an insane amount of time, really, because I don't think I know. People will work out and stuff like that. They think, you know, three, four times a week, that's kind of all like you need. And like you said, you really only lift in four times a week, but it's all the recovery that you have to put in in order to, you know, perform the next day, just day in and day out, because you have to put in so much work and all those hours, you know, in such a a short amount of time, because it's such a fast turnaround. And then, you know, after the combine too, you know, you're still working with these guys because there's pro days and stuff that they have to, you know, hit as well. So is there any kind of improvements that you guys are striving to make from combine to pro day? 
So it really depends on, so some guys don't get pro, uh, combine invites. They only get a pro day invite, which is my favorite because you're at a disadvantage. I mean, you're an advantage because there's guaranteed 32 teams and you're on the biggest stage, but you're at a disadvantage because some of these guys don't get done with their bowl games until the first week of January. And then the combine's going to hit at the end of February. And would you rather have six weeks to prepare for something or 12 weeks? Um, and the answer is 12 weeks. So also that's all laser timed at the combine and they go off hand signal. So you're run ragged as far as the day you get up at four in the morning, they're drug testing you at five o'clock. It is, it's almost like I've never been to boot camp, but it is, they book their days from five in the morning until night. They're trying to psychologically and physically exhaust the player to see how they can perform you know under distress and high stress situations and to me it's I'm a little too much but from the interviewing that you're bringing up yeah they're asking um these guys are you're sleep deprived and then in the interviews are typically at night eight o'clock at night you're running on three or four hours of sleep and they're asking you you know what's your favorite chair to sit in and why or it used to be really bad they cleaned it up they would do bring up like you know what's your stance on being gay and this was 15 years ago I don't want to talk like I'm old but they would say their goal was to try and shock you and throw you off and see how you would come back but now they've calmed it down because you really can't say anything in the world anymore but um yeah, the whole thing is just completely, it's so hard. And then you got to perform at your best level, most important day ever, on four hours of sleep, medical testing. They're poking and prodding. These guys get poked around by 32 teams. Every doctor is instructed to do whatever possible and try and find anything, even if you think it could be nothing. They And we have to teach them how to beat the tests. So somebody will be testing. If you're a quarterback, they're doing all the manual you know, external rotation and, and shoulder testing to see if, and you could be completely fine. The big, are you sure that doesn't hurt? So it's like, for some of these guys, it's like prepping them. They're going to go through and take you through all these tests. And what you're going to do is nothing hurts. So you're, they're trying to beat that test. So to perform at a high level there, I mean, it, a lot of them do, some of them don't, but the good news is everybody gets a pro day. And the pro day, you're on your home turf. Um, you have more time to prepare for it. They're using stopwatches and not lasers. And you it's just everybody is always faster and better at your pro day. So it's a great way to make up if you do have a bad combine. Yeah, and I, people do make such a big deal about the combine. Uh I I do like the the whole idea of the pro day better just being on your home turf or just having a lot of control in it uh and yeah I got to kind of throw with and uh go through some workouts with some of the guys that were doing pro day workouts and stuff and it was a lot of fun but it's still just a lot of work and it's a lot different too because it's kind of your one opportunity to to run the test and stuff like that uh, at the combine, you always get the, the opportunity to do it at the pro day as well. But 
Yeah. Uh, so how much does all of that stuff, just like hitting the numbers and the reactions to the combine and just having a good pro day, what does that do for your draft stock and on draft day? Um, <clears throat> and this is why agents hire professional places to do this because performing well at your draft or performing well at the combine draft day can raise your draft stock. So in 2003, Ben Watson was projected as a third round draft pick and the guy was relentless. And I mean, nobody even know who, who he is right now, but, or now he's old and maybe retired, but he lasted like solid ass 13 years in the league. But he was a third rounder, came in hungry, uh, tested off the charts, and became the end of the first round. So, and the difference of that is millions of dollars. So, I believe Rosenhaus is probably his agent, and Rosenhaus invested whatever, 50 grand in him. And just from doing the training, he was able to, and improving his measurables so well, he ended up making millions of dollars because the kid, you know, showed out and it can drop, drop your draft stock. So this year I was listening today, some kid ran whatever, a four, six, five wide receiver, six, one, two, twelve, And it was just like, you know, in the college level that works because they're college DBs, but in the professional level of four, six, you got to run the most amazing routes ever. You don't see four sixes out there anymore. And there are, because everybody's got to say, oh, Antonio Brown. But Antonio Brown would but Antonio Brown is a degenerate A. But he runs the best routes you've ever seen in your life. And, you know, people are so worried about being fast, but they're forgetting the, you know, there's other components of it. And you see guys that can run a 4-4, and it looks like they're on skates, you know, when they're trying to cut and do various you know routes so and that guy his draft stock lowered and then we got to go with I don't know if there's a correlation Malik Willis in his small hands didn't he go in the third round It, it was Kenny Pickett they said that he had small hands but there's also a whole other thing because the way they measure your hands at the combine is they put it on a flat surface uh, but when you hold a football, apparently is a double-jointed thumb, so it wraps around and it secures the ball better. But he also wears two gloves, so people, you know, it's a weird eye visual from time to time. But he was selected, I think, 20th overall. You can't quote me on that because I wasn't looking at it recently. But by the Steelers, he was the first quarterback off the board. So, you know, another one of those weird mental things. I mean, so many people made a big deal of – his hand size and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, I mean, it really didn't wind up mattering that much. Yeah. I was listening to uh, a GM of, I think, I think it was the GM of the Cowboys. And he said that they, I mean, they, every part of you is measured and it all goes into a database and they can run and this guy, they ran and they determined that, if your hand isn't, they looked at every quarterback and whatever they've ever drafted or signed in the past 40 years, and anybody with a hand length or a hand size lower than X, no one ended up making it except for one quarterback in whatever, 
40 years and it was Troy Aikman. So this guy said, we're going to follow that data. And so the guy on the, who that was interviewing was like, let me get this straight. If this guy's hands are too small, no matter who he is, Lamar Jackson, Mahomes, like crazy athletic, it, the hand, the, there's nothing past the hands. He's like, nope. And the Cowboys haven't won forever. So. Yeah, no, they've been uh, pretty fallen short. It's been pretty rough. But yeah. Short hands. Short hands, maybe. No, big hands. Their hands are too big. Their hands are so big, but I see their wide receivers drop balls all the time. That they do. I mean, what even is a catch these days? But are there any, you know, good uh good combine stories or draft prep stories that you have? Um let me think. So I had a he was a linebacker. He was 6'6", 260, and I'm taking him through the pre-test measurables, and we go through, and we get his 40, and we get 5'10", 5'3", and we get to the bench test. Now, typically, if you're a 260-pound linebacker that's about to go into the NFL, you would do 225, 20, 25 reps. Um and I so I break it off the bar. I'm, All right, let's go. And everybody's cheering. And he and he's like one, two. And I'm like, ooh, that two was hard. I I don't know if he hit the po if he hit the upright. And he got three reps. And I'm like, what happened? Did you get hurt? He's like, no, nah, man. I mean, I'm like, man, you got three reps. You have to be able to. You've been in college. This goes back to college strength and conditioning programs. Now, given he had super long arms, don't care. You're 260 pounds. That means if you do 225 three times, your one rep max is like 245. You can't bench your body weight. You're going to go to the NFL and you can't bench your body weight. And what happened was, I mean, I don't think he applied himself in the weight room. I'm trying to be diplomatic in college. And I also think that they just didn't care. Um, So I'm like, okay, three. So my average, because we measure all this, is an eight-rep increase. So somebody comes in and they bench 20. I know that in 12 weeks it will be around 28. Now, it's average. So I've had you know people above eight. I've had people below eight. So I'm sitting here, and, and the agent's like, Ned, is that a typo? And I'm like, no, nah, nah, man, three reps. He's like, how does that happen? I'm like, I don't know. And he was like, dude, he's got to do like 2025. And I'm like, yeah, I know. So the end result, the good news is he didn't go to the combine. He just did his pro day. So we go through and we train him. And I get the, we get the results. And I was they posted all. You could actually read the article still online. And it said uh, blank and blank. We'll leave his name out of it. Killed his pro day. He ran a 44240. This is or a four four nine, so he was a four four guy at two hundred fifty five two hundred sixty pounds, and ultimately that was the most important thing because your forty makes him. And then they're like his broad jump was you know ten feet, and that's really good at two hundred sixty pounds. And they're like the only glaring weakness was his two twenty five bench test where he somehow only got fourteen reps. And I'm reading this and I'm like. 
dude, he did so good. <laughs> like, I'm so proud of myself right now because he went up plus. So I'm like, and it was a different time back then. So I don't even know if he called me and told me or whatever. But when I read the story, I'm like fist pumping for this 14. That 14 prevented him from probably getting drafted because he was put into a category of extraordinarily weak. But I'm like, if they knew where he was at when he started, they would be ecstatic because it was it was crazy. So I, he went plus 11 and the agent was pissed off. But I'm like, dude, he was at three. He's like, he needs to be at 20 or 20. I'm like, I ran out of time. I got a, whatever, 11 weeks. And he was gone for two bowl games. So I had him for nine weeks. And so that was a weird story or a weird, I mean, it ended up working out. He played five years in the league. So at least they were smart enough to understand that, you know, it was fine. So that was weird. I had uh, I had a, an athlete tell me, so he was a big guy, had to lose weight. My job is, you know, an agent says I need him at 310. And no matter, you know, he's, the guy was 340. And I was like, you, I mean, it's by whatever means necessary. There's no options to just be like, eh. So I was doing conditioning with him, and I was screaming at him, and and he said, "I hate you more than the father that I've that I never had," because he didn't have a father. And I'm like, "Wow!" And it's just some of the things that the guys would say is just, I mean, you try not to take it personal, and it's funny because I still talk to him to this day, and he's a great guy. Um, but at the time that's a, that's a heavy hitting, that's a heavy hitting comment. Um, but the overall experience, I mean, it's just, there's a million stories that I'm not going to tell, but it's just, some of them are good. Some of them are bad. You know, I've gotten great results with a lot of them. I messed up in the process, you know, some of them, um, it's tough because with agents, it's, uh, it's funny. The guy, the broad jump guy that I was telling you about is calling right now and I have to not answer this. Um, it's, you can, you can have great results with 10 guys out of 11 and the focus is the one guy that didn't. Everybody's, everybody's career is on the line. Every amount of money is invested. It's super stressful and it's the, what I love about it is it's the ultimate, you know, everybody's like, oh, I can make somebody faster. There's no, you want to, you, you think you can make somebody faster? It's real simple. Prepare them for a combine. You're, you're not, you can't fake the time. You can't click the button a little bit faster. There's no cheating. It's you get a guy, he comes in, he's banged up. You know, they'll, I had, I have players. He's got to gain 25 pounds and reduces 47 tenths of a second. And there's no negotiating. It's like, these are the numbers that your agent gives you, and that's what you're supposed to hit, and you got to hit it. And there's not a lot of wiggle room for error. So the guys that actually do it and do it the right way, they do. They do improve their their speed, and they do crazy things. And I've put 30 pounds on a guy and had dropped his 45 tenths of a second. But... You know, I should be able to do that because they're spending seven or eight hundred hours, you know, a week doing it. So it's super stressful. It's really cool. Um, I've had probably more. I don't want to say more bad experiences in good, than good experiences, 
with the way that I do my business now, with those, it's like, yes, I helped you get drafted and get into the NFL, but you were a great athlete when you came to me. Uh, and so I don't, I never had like on draft day, I would watch the draft and watch the players get drafted. And I've watched players that I've had since they were in high school get drafted. And it just hits different because it's like, they were going to make it. I was just the place that they came to train wherever they trained. I'm assuming they didn't go to a really bad place, but they were high enough level athletes that they were probably going to go to a decent place. It's just like, it's not as fulfilling than to have that ground up kid that was projected and not make it at all actually make it. So I'm not trying to piss in everybody's Cheerios, but for the, you don't make a lot of money doing it. Um, it's a big time sucker within your facility because you're literally that job is your job. So you're working 60 hours a week doing that job, but within the facility you have the rest of you have what about those 75 middle school high school and college athletes that you have what happens to them and there's only so much time and and a lot of the business gets sacrificed because you put all your time and energy into these guys and at the end of the day for most of the places that I were it didn't you know I'm I'm spending all of my time for five percent of the total gross revenue so people do it because the concept is, you know, well, if he trains them and prepares them for the NFL, then I can send my kid there. It's like he's ignoring your kid to work with these guys. So and just because you have the guys like the way it is, especially in Connecticut, there's performance places. All they do is dry, get in these guys' DMs, come over for get a free workout and I'll train you for free to build their name. These guys aren't paying any money. They're ignoring all the people that are actually paying money. Most of the guys, they go down south or they go to reputable places to get training. They're back in their hometown. Then the performance coach, this is my bitching about performance places in Connecticut, they basically get the kid home, have him come in, and then attach themselves to the pro day like they're the ones that trained them. So I have I have colleagues in Florida that prepare guys they come back up to the East Coast and they live, you know, an hour away from me, closer to other places. And then their their news information pops. And then the new place that is just letting them work out there takes the credit, you know, for the results. So it's a dirty business. Um, the, the agents, you know, are difficult. And I've worked with really good agents and I've worked with really bad agents and that whole experience is, I mean, it's all business and it's hard for me. I have a very personal component to me that is, that means nothing, um, and doesn't help at all during, you know, the interactions with the agents and the expectations. But I mean, I'll still, I still occasionally do it. The last one I did was a couple of years ago. Uh, and I'll end up, I'm going to end up doing more of them, but I don't want the factory of 10 to 30 guys. I just want one guy, two guys. I ensure that they get the right training and the right treatment and the right attention. So they don't become the guys that go pay all the money where they spend all the attention to the, I know so many seventh round undrafted free agents who they go to the factories and they get ignored because 
you're going to go where your bread's buttered. So, and they're paying attention to the first and second round drafters. And for me, everybody should get an equal, equal attention and ever to get equal results. And it doesn't happen, you know, in that way most of the time. It is pretty wild just how much goes into it. And it, it does make sense. Like you said, so much is on the line. I mean, it's millions of dollars. Like the Patriots drafted uh, a guard from Chattanooga, I think it was. Uh, he was projected to be the fourth round. He drafted him in the first just to uh, the, the people, you know, who trained him at the sports performance place he was at, you know, just everyone in his family, him, you know, his coaches, everyone that prepared him for that. That's just incredible life-changing money that you just, you know, kind of had to work so hard for, but it's, it's all of that preparation. That's why you do it. And that's why it matters so much. And then just like you said, you know, there's other times where it doesn't, it doesn't work out and you just start crashing down the draft board or you wind up being, being undrafted. And it's uh, a long way to, to battle back, you know, try and get that second contract. Cause that's where it comes back to you. But yeah, I think that's uh, going to do it for us this week at the NES experience. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.